Welcome to Surviving Society Presents Hidden Histories, Season 1, titled Resistance and Restoration in Black Liverpool. My name is Dr. Chantel Jessica Lewis, and I'm the executive producer of the show. In this episode, Shelda and I were joined by Alan Crawford. Alan is part of the Liverpool African and Caribbean Grassroots Initiative, aka LACG. We talk about how LACG took over and restored the Merseyside Caribbean Centre. There's some amazing work that's been happening in this city and at the forefront of this is a multi-generational and intergenerational effort to restore a physical space for black people to come together and celebrate their history and present day with family, friends and community. What an incredible example of reclaiming space. I hope you enjoy the episode. Welcome to Surviving Society Presents Hidden Histories. This is a collaborative project focused on histories and contemporary formations of empire, imperialism and slavery in Britain and the Caribbean. You are listening to season one, titled Resistance and Restoration in Black Liverpool. In these episodes, we locate Black Liverpool as a site of pride, history and resistance. We feature researchers and community organisers who discuss themes related to grassroots organising, health, art and the toxic uprising. We hope you find these episodes informing, invigorating and inspiring. Right, we're at the Merseyside Caribbean Community Centre. I'm joined by... Chantel and we have Alan Crawford with us who is a secretary for Liverpool African Caribbean Grassroots Initiative, LACG, and in his practice he, he works as a counsellor and psychotherapist. So we are going to be talking about today the Caribbean Centre and Liverpool's history of community grassroots organising. So I know Shelda through working with the, the Caribbean Community Centre. She um, has been involved in supporting us and links with the university as well. Um, how I got involved, I well, my family come from this area. Um, my granddad came from Barbados in the Caribbean, landed here and actually lived on this street uh, where the centre's built. There used to be houses here. Um, married an Irish woman and uh, the rest is history, the classic Liverpool 8 love story. Lots of mixed race beige kids running around. But it, it's kind of our family moved out of the area and I I guess I felt a lot of cultural disconnection um, growing up in a very white area and, and you know my dad tended to look towards America for his kind of idea of blackness rather than to the Caribbean but I felt this pull towards wanting to connect more with with our kind of uh, our heritage and our, our cultural background so I guess I it felt important to me especially after George Floyd to kind of reconnect with that and part of that for me was uh, moving back to this area and getting involved with the Caribbean Centre as well as reconnecting with my family back in Barbados as well. I think for me I used to use this centre when I was a child but when the centre kind of fell into a state of disrepair and it was abandoned, Lackji they um, formed to to sort of take the centre on themselves and, and try and restore it and bring it back to life. So when I saw that that was happening and the sort of protest movement around that, I thought I couldn't not lend a hand. Well, there's been a black presence in Liverpool going back 300 years. It's one of the oldest black communities in Europe. But particularly after the Windrush generation, um, the community kind of stepped up and really wanted some space that was their own. 
originally they were meeting in basements and things, playing dominoes and you know, sound system culture and stuff. But then this uh, this center was was one and I believe gifted by six the six key islands that that opened the center, and it's it was active for you know best part of thirty years, but then was shut yeah. for nearly a decade. And a huge like community like engagements around carnival. So Liverpool mm. did, believe it or not, used to have carnival. It was never as big as London or Leeds or anything, but we uh, we did have one, and that was due to the founders of of the Caribbean Centre and those that set it up. But unfortunately, we've lost that that we're hoping to regain. It'd be really good to find out a bit about the present moment in terms of the centre, and I think that this centre gives a, a kind of case study example of how a lot of black organisers and activists are taking back physical spaces, particularly within the UK. And we've got quite a few examples at the moment in London. But you guys technically are quote squatting because it's a socially constructed term. Like we should have whatever we want. Give us all the stuff. <laughs> no, I think it's important to recognise that because this place was actually gifted to us, right? Gifted to the Caribbean community mm-hmm. um, in the 1970s and they gave us uh, like a 100-year lease. Am I right? Something, like that, Something yeah. like that. Because of, I guess, poor management with the center we lost that early 2000s yeah. and now we're at the process of trying to get that original lease back now the council have offered a sort of short-term lease but you know we want the original we've got about what, 40 to 60 years left on that mm-hmm. somewhere yeah we're just trying to get that back because they were they were gifted to each of the kinds of communities there was the the Ebo center the sierra leone center and the caribbean center so we've just lost ours over gifted in goodwill or gifted to shut us up <laughs> no i'm, I'm serious though because yeah like black liverpudlians you guys don't fuck about like is it was it to was it about shutting what shutting people up or was it a true true girl. reparative gesture slash gift anecdotally what we say um you know neither me or shell was on the original lakchi um, group we've kind of come on board later and got involved but the original the kind of og kind of lakchi people literally broke in the, the place and took over it because it was closed it was covered in shit literally <laughs> you know the toilets were blocked up there were homeless people sleeping on the stage uh, and they came in a protest movement broke in, cleaned the place up, did loads of work on it. I basically said, we're not going anywhere. You know, we're, we're reclaiming this place. And there's a group of members who are here pretty much every day. And part of the reason here every day is just to stamp our presence and say, look, this place is ours, we're not going anywhere. And while the legal negotiations go on with the council, we're not moving, you know. Uh, we want a lease. Um, and the council know we're squatting, you know, we're doing events, we're doing fundraising, we're doing things. We had a dance the other night, we had a, an elders luncheon, things are happening. They just, you know, the mayor's praised what's going on here. You know, it's, it's, it's funny. It's quite, a, it's quite a, an attractive piece of land. So we've had interests from like various external, won't name them, <laughs> um, developers, and stuff, developers yeah. but also also the university have expressed an interest in student accommodation so there's a lot there's it's quite a lucrative piece of land in the council's eyes so i think that's where their reluctance to sign it over has historically come from not not so much now so that's crazy because it's like it's a space of resistance for black uh, multi-generational black people in liverpool but also it's becoming a space of resistance to capitalism as well. Like you guys are saying, there's not a price on this. There's not a price. It's ours. It's a space for us, for love, solidarity, hope, community. You're not having it. Because you know what I mean? Like often people will say like, what's your price? What's your price? And that in, in that in itself, you guys saying, 
understanding that it's a lucrative space but saying no that in itself is yeah resistance yeah like 100% no one's a sellout here are they like they're not though they're really like against it I mean I mean I think we need to acknowledge as well that like as a board we've been doing the kind of like official face and all that kind of negotiations around the lease but there's a strong like volunteer membership that like like alan said are here every day cleaning up you know taking out of their own pocket to put mm. to keep this place going tending the gardens everything like it's it's proper like grassroots for sure uh, and I, I like what you said then about to be on resistance to capitalism because it absolutely is like you know what we're having to do is demonstrate the social value and the cultural value this place has and putting a strong case forward that that is bigger than money, you know, mm-hmm. uh, for this community, but also for Liverpool. How do you find your role, Shelder, as balancing doing this kind of community organising, like being in community with Alan and organising and the other board members, whilst also, like, recognising the harms that institutions that we work for play um, the harm that they sort of um, reproduce within places like this, like the fact that we belong to institutions that um, infringe upon um, space and places like this. But there is always ways to find, well, what I think we can do is find find ways to extract from those places and then to support these places. I mean, how do you find that, those two roles? I mean, like, don't get me wrong, there are some, it's not easily reconciled. Mm. But I do believe in that redistributive potential of like, well, what we can do as academics or not just academics, people who work in galleries or museums, that it's not just a surface level oh, community engagement. Because I do find that a lot of the community engagement that I see coming from universities or cultural institutions as a bit superficial or just not on a surface level like there's no deep commitment or long-term commitment to the actual communities they engage with and so it is difficult because the academy can take you away from any community work at time you know time pressure and that's that's actually stopped me from working how i'd like on the the caribbean center but yeah i'd I'd say that that it's a tension that i don't have the answer to community organizing grassroots community organizing getting people together different personalities together is complicated it's hard like what are some of the obstacles that you've come up against and I think I think part of the reason to say this is not to detract from from the work but just sort of to put the human face on it because sometimes I think those of us on the left romanticize this type of work and actually like it's it's fucking hard and it's emotional and it's tiring and there's a lot there's a lot to be said about managing different personalities and all that stuff but i think if we we speak truth to it as in say what it is then that can sort of help us to reconcile with those things even like instead of just saying that it's just all romantic we found that to be one of the challenges in terms of like what aspect of the culture are we representing you know some people want this space to be primarily for dancers and things like that other people really want to um, go deeper into the culture but even in terms of there's there's beef and the, and there's kind of debate around is it African Caribbean or is it Caribbean even that kind of old one you know there's um yeah for sure for sure there's debates on our our Facebook group last week over this very thing you know somebody called it the African Caribbean Centre and someone's like nah this is the Caribbean Centre you know so it, it's 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 pure drama as ever but why can't we be nice to each other diaspora diasporas diasporas every day diasporas every day. <laughs> <laughs> but I guess we can do that whilst also recognizing other people have different ways of 
being affiliated with who they are and their cultural background and that's the tension isn't it like can I make claim to my identity my ethnicity how I'm racialized where my family are from whilst also Mm. recognizing that someone has a similar but very different experience to me but we can be in community together like reconciling those things I think are really difficult can I just pick up on what like, Chantelle was saying about romanticising community work and all this is something that like me and Alan like not just me and Alan but everyone involved in this centre has to confront is that those differences of opinion are they can be huge so internally we have to work like as a community understanding that we have um, disagreements discrepancies but then trying to put on a united kind of image to to the other the, the institutions the council that are coming at us as well so it, it's trying to manage both sort of internal and external pressures and it's it, it's difficult it's not easy it's time consuming and it's a labor of love and, and you know we, we'll come up against things like apathy as well and issues around trust and there's trust in each other um you know liverpool 8 has got like a rich history of, of activism and community organizing that kind of peaked in the 70s and 80s and then kind of waned a bit. Um, still, there's a sense of community here that that's greater than I've experienced in some other places. And there is that spirit of activism still alive here. But at the same time, there's kind of a sense that the baton wasn't fully passed. Uh, it's the next generation. Um, and it's, yeah, for sure. It's like trying to engage younger people who are quite apathetic, who are maybe a bit more individualistic sometimes and materialistic, and it's trying to get people to care about things and to care enough to actually become active. But at the same time, understanding that people's lives are hard, like our lives are hard, like, you know, it's stressful to live in a capitalist society. Um, People are drained, people are tired, people are numbing out. And trying to get them to come to the Caribbean centre and and get involved is, is tough sometimes. Yes, just picking up on some of the things you were just talking about, Alan, in terms of, like, trust. And, like, this is something which I'm really interested in um, in terms of a real investment in our intimate social relations or actually, like, what Levi... I think Levi taught me this um, about thinking really critically about social reproduction, as in, like, how our micro-social relations relate to how we're able to eventually, hopefully, overthrow capitalism. And actually, like, in those exchanges, in the quote-unquote boardroom in the Caribbean centre where someone's insinuating that someone's being untrustworthy, like, that in itself maps onto how our capacity or our ability to be able to actually get free um, yeah. and understanding that these these are the microsites where it happens and you need like people within the group to reconcile those two relationships and those that, those, that relationship the relationship being the person who is suspected of being untrustworthy and the person who is untrustworthy you still you can't neither of those people can be or quote unquote untrustworthy can be ostracized it's finding ways to reconcile i keep saying reconcile but it's it's a, it's a lot isn't it it's very on that point though i wanted to actually ask alan because i think what we do like we you know just speaking the truth we're in a quite a fractured even though we're unified community we are sort of fractured as a, as a racial and um sort of economically class deprived community and there are like they have like interpersonal I was going to ask you about this, Alan. Interpersonal mm-hmm. consequences and the the, the impact on our psychology, our well being. Mm. And my question to you was: Do you see that emerging around the centre, or if? I think Liverpool Eight is is um 
a community that carries a lot of intergenerational trauma. Um, and I really, something I'm really interested in and as a therapist, but also someone of mixed heritage and Caribbean heritage. Yeah, you see that trauma playing out in how we interact with each other. And there's kind of often a distrust, I think, that stops people from believing or trusting the motives or the intentions of people that are involved and some of that's because you know there's history here in terms of in the past how do we regain that trust and build i think it i think it comes back to the things i was saying before like it is social reproduction it's coming from a place of like to be loving is such a radical act because we're around these walls or outside of these walls is a society of lovelessness like we don't reward lovingness like it so it is hard and it is i think it comes back to our everyday social relations and the social reproduction of those relations what i mean by that is so you're saying how do we do it how do we overcome it it is by engaging with with what it is that that person in particular feels or, or feels that they're not being heard on or feels that they're and that that work is so tiring and so exhausting and it's not for everyone there are i think that there are many people within the movement that for mul- reasons such as being have experiencing multiple marginalizations maybe shouldn't have to do that as much as others but i do think you do need some people that are willing to be that here um but then that means that they do maybe less of the admin work <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Like, is everyone has their kind of part to play, but it's hard and it's a struggle. I think. Kind of, it's kind of like a community psychology approach. I know I haven't, I brought that's what I see you mm. doing because you do a lot of work with the black men's group as well. Yeah. So, you, can you tell us a bit about that kind of work you do? I guess my journey with that has been I qualified as first a person centered therapist and work with individuals for time. Um, also involved with rehabs and things like that, work on addiction. But then I was saying to you before, Sheldon, wasn't I? I guess I had a bit of a realisation a few years back in terms of the inner work is important. I still absolutely back that and believe in that, but it only seems to go so far. Um, so I started becoming more interested in connection and the importance of being connected to each other. Uh, but even then, I, something felt like it was missing in terms of you know, I was focusing on you know healthy relationships and friendships. But I think the revelation for me is is community is key to our healing, that we need to heal in communities. And especially, you know, if you look at, you know, anti-colonial approaches to mental health, even the term mental health I don't like, going back to kind of an African-centered way of doing things, you know, our ancestors were community-focused, not individual-focused. And something I'd love to really do, alongside still work with individuals, is to create some kind of, I'd love to do it here at the centre or wherever, really, but to bring together some kind of healing circle that's community-based. Uh, I think we really need it here. Yeah, I mean, like, even just watching the men outside, they mm. sit at that table, like, every day. And it's like, yeah, it's not like an official form of therapy or anything like that, isn't it? But it's it's community, and that mm. is healing in itself. And you can speak to any of them, and they'd, I think they'd back up that, you know, it's important that they, that this space is here. The Western kind of colonial approach to therapy locates everything inside the individual. It's like CBT is the, the most extreme form of it, I think, because it really is, you know, almost like gaslighting yourself, like change the way you think and everything will be cool. But even the type of therapy I was trained in, it's got a lot of positives to it, but also it's still looking at the person, not look at the structures, the communities. And I think we need a, a, a wider perspective on, on our well-being. 
Yeah. I think um, Alan's like Liverpool's answer to fun on. That's amazing. I really, really like what you said, Alan, about like, I think a lot of us, like, let's just talk for a minute as a people, as black people need to do the work on ourselves. And I do think we need that through therapy, through professionals. I do think that that is really important. But I really liked what you said in terms of that isn't the end point. And that's just part of the journey. So part of the journey is doing the work on like internalized issues. But then beyond that is being in community. I'm literally just repeating what you said, but like is being in community because that is just so, I've never heard it put that way as in, because there's so much urgency in doing that work on ourselves. It's so difficult to see beyond see beyond that and beyond that as you say is being in collective and community together doing that i guess i just i always felt this sense of cultural dis- disconnection um it's you know and again like a baton wasn't passed on my, my granddad you know didn't talk a lot he was a quiet man you know i didn't know a lot about his his life in in barbados and my dad yeah looked to america more and i guess i guess i felt this sense of history and and something that yeah there's something missing that helped me to understand my place in the world especially as kind of a light-skinned mixed person who has dealt a lot with identity issues through my life and you know has at times felt labeled or rejected on on both sides of the equation sometimes you know i've had um black people uh, tell me i'm not black i've had white people treat me kind of in, in ways that were influenced by by who i am and I was like, well, who, who the fuck am I then? Where do I fit in the world? And after after George Floyd, I guess it sent me into a bit of an existential crisis. It was like, everyone was, was posting on Twitter and Instagram. I was just dead silent because I was like, it was too much. And I, I, it was trauma, I think, for all of us. But but also, I didn't know what my voice was as a as a mixed person who hadn't grown up with that connection. I was like, where where is my voice? What do I have to say about this? Where do I fit? And that sent me on a bit of a journey, really, in terms of doing my ancestry and my family tree and really into genealogy and reconnecting with my family back in Barbados and getting to know them and building connections with them. So I guess, yeah, for why the Caribbean? I guess I was looking for some some roots, something to connect with. In terms of ethnic absolutism, it's interesting in terms of how Liverpool has its own kind of unique um, identity as a black community. It's It's funny that... In Liverpool, at least historically, it may be changed. I don't know what you feel, Shelda, but my perspective moving here compared to living in other places is that in Liverpool, there's almost a sense of that American-style one-drop thing. Like, you know, the beige mixed-race children call themselves, ourselves, black. Yeah. Um, and that was a bit of a head, head fuck for me because I was like, I've always identified as mixed-race. Um, but then coming here, it's like, no, no, we're black. Yeah. I was like, well, okay, I- cool, but... So, yeah, there's, there's just a unique history, I guess, that gives context to that. It's funny. I was going to say, I don't know if this is like a northern thing or Liverpool thing, but like the term half caste wasn't alien to us growing mm. up. What about you? I got you... called half caste all yeah. the time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. and like, yeah. D- and then as a yeah. child, that's what you would describe yourself as, as yeah. half caste. And yeah. and then it, as, as an adult, and I'd, I'd meet black people outside of Liverpool, they'd be like, oh, you can't use that. You <laughs> don't, don't describe yourself in, in, in such ways. Yeah. But it was that was what we grew up at. And I think part of Liverpool's got you know that uh, that term Scouse exceptionalism like we're Scouse not English and mm. that also feeds into the black community which mightn't always describe itself as Scouse but it's got that kind of mm. separate strong 
you know, we're Liverpool eight, not Liverpool. Uh, <laughs> so, yeah. they, they, they even use a particular name for it, don't they? Liverpool born black. Liverpool born, yeah. Yeah, it's an identifier, yeah. yeah. Shelda, can you break down for listeners what the Liverpool eight is? Uh, what do we mean by the Liverpool eight? Okay, so Liverpool eight is the postcode of Toxteth. Historically black and ethnic, diverse, Post-mode. yeah. But, th- but that's what I mean. It, it, it gets attributed to... to to black or African and Caribbean people, but it's it's so like ethnically diverse, you know. Or the uprisings, we don't talk about the See, they're proper, they're proper in Liverpool. We've got, yeah. we've got a lot of self hate in London, you know. Yeah. We've got right, some rights, rights. It's uprisings. <laughs> well, I'd like to think infrequently, but probably like we do sometimes make generalizations about how we label ourselves and or label certain events and that's and that's important to say as well but i think yeah you sort of checking me there on uprisings is really powerful no i have to check myself as well because i'm used to saying riots that's that's what it was that was what we know we knew it as riots but then i think again pointing to george floyd's in the past two years i see that like that narrative's really changed like even the museums are calling it the 1981 uprisings you know what i mean so You've been listening to Surviving Society Presents Hidden Histories, Season 1, titled Resistance and Restoration in Black Liverpool. To keep up with all our work, please do follow, rate, subscribe and review.